Good morning, church. Uh, so good to see all of you here, uh, especially if you're visiting today. want to welcome you. Um, we, we've been in a, a series together over the last couple of months called The Questions of Jesus. Um, amazingly, Jesus asked literally hundreds of questions in the Gospels, um, much more than the answer man. He was the question man. And we are looking at some, just a selection of those questions throughout Epiphany and Lent, asking, uh, what is Jesus, why is he asking these questions? And I hope you're discovering is that it's not because he's trying to grill us or test us or analyze us, because he wants to know us. He wants to know us and for us to know him. He wants to initiate a relationship with us, his people. That's, that's what we're inviting you into in this season. So uh, as Drew also said, today is the beginning of, uh, of Holy Week or sometimes what the church calls Passion Week. Uh, this is this is the, the, the big deal week for Christians. This is the, the Super Bowl, the, the, the World Series, the Masters. This is it, friends. This is the, the events that we are about to remember and celebrate this week are the ones on which Christians believe hangs the hope of the universe. And so that's why we make all this time, this extra time this week to really meditate on what happens this week in the life of Jesus. So on Thursday night, Monday, Thursday, we remember the Last Supper and we're looking at the question that Jesus asks his disciples at the Last Supper, do you understand what I am doing for you? And then on Good Friday, we're looking, of course, at the horrific crucifixion and we're looking at the question of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then on Easter morning, when we remember the triumphant resurrection of Jesus, we're looking at the question, why are you weeping? Which he asked to sweet Mary. So I hope you'll join us uh, for that. Um, let me just address, just for a moment, our, the, the fam, okay? Just for, I know some of you are visiting, um, but let me just address kind of the church, third church fam, covenant partners, regular tenders. Um, next week's going to be crazy. It always is, um, especially because of the nature of our building um, last year, we had almost 1,600 people on Sunday morning, and this sanctuary holds 350, so that's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> and the math doesn't really work out for that. And so that's why we're doing this thing where um, we'll have two concurrent services at 9, one in here, one down in the Fellowship Hall, two concurrent services at 11, one in here, one down in the Fellowship Hall. Does that make sense? All the music's going to be the same, the liturgy's going to be the same, I'm going to preach in all four. Not sure how that's going to happen, but we're going to make it work. Um, <laughs> And, um, and so here, here's what I would ask, those of you who are, who are family here. Um, so like, if you do the math, that means the a lot, more than half of us, the majority of us need to be down in the fellowship hall. And so, you know, I know it's Easter, I know this is a glorious room, but you know, you just might be, call be called by Jesus to take up your cross <laughs> next Sunday <laughs> and worship down in that fellowship hall in the name of the Lord. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and it is true, we had 200 first-time visitors last Easter, and so we know that those people most often come to the sanctuary, because that's where they expect church to happen. So by going down there, you are making room for many to, to hear about Jesus. So also, another way you can be a, a hospitable person is through parking. Um, I learned this week that only 27% of our parking is adjacent to the building. We actually have plenty of parking, believe it or not, but it's all very far away, except for 27% of it. So if you are in the fam, would you not park in one of the parking lots that are next to the building? Um, would you uh, park in one of those parking lots across the street at the school, in the center across the street? Um, maybe at, uh, at the building next door or maybe at the University of Richmond or Carytown, you know? Um, <laughs> You could, you, you know, my new phrase is take up your cross and take an Uber. That's, uh, 
That's what you could do next Sunday. And again, every space you leave, you leave for someone new to come and hear about Jesus. So friends, let's do it. Can I get an amen? amen? All right, let us pray for the word of God, okay? Dearest Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you and praise you for the events of this week. And we just really want this week, I mean, we do this every year, but the reason we do this every year is because all of history and the universe hang in the balance of what happens this week. And so we just pray, starting today, that these events would not wash over us and just be ritual and tradition, but that you would meet us in the power of the Spirit, that we would encounter Jesus in his word, and that we would come to know him even for the first time, even freshly again. So let that begin today. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. I mean, let's read from Mark 20, verses 17 through 28. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to Jesus with their sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? That's our question today. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And when the 10 others heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and he said, listen, y'all, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. As a kid, I desperately wanted to be an archaeologist for like 12 years, archaeologist. And it was the reason, 100% the reason was because I was obsessed with Indiana Jones. Um, And that's what I thought archaeologists did. So like every Halloween, Indiana Jones. Teachers in school, what do you want to be when you grow up? Indiana Jones. And, and it lasted for like 12 years until literally I was in middle school and I took a archaeology class and I got to go on a real live archaeological dig. And I went in this dig and what I discovered is that archaeology is mind-numbingly boring. <laughs> um, all we did all day long was like dust some pots. And like the whole time I was like, where are the grave robbers? Like where, when do I use my whip? I, I, don't, I, I don't understand this. It was, it was crushing. It was crushing uh, to my dream. And yet, my great admiration and love for the Indiana Jones franchise has continued right up until today, although the latest film was highly disappointing. I will say, my favorite, my, in my personal opinion, the best of all the films is uh, The Last Crusade. Because The Last Crusade is built around the legend of the grail, the legend of the cup. That is a legend that is rooted in King Arthur, who was king of Britain in the 6th century and the Knights of the Round Table. 
The, the legend was is that Joseph of Arimathea, who we read about in the Gospels, somehow obtained the grail after the Last Supper. He collected the blood of Jesus from the cross and then at some point migrated to Britain and lost the grail. And the, Arthur and his knights were on a great quest to recover the grail because the mythology of the grail was, and this is what you see in the, in the Indiana Jones film as well, the mythology of the, of the cup is this, that the one who drinks the cup gets glory. The one who drinks the cup gets power. The one who drinks the cup gets immortality and unmatchable greatness. Greatness and glory go to the one who drinks the cup. So when Jesus says here in verse 22, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? The disciples say, oh yes, we can because that's exactly what they had in mind. They still think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to reign, to gain power, to dethrone the Romans and to be king. And they want a piece of that. They say, yeah, that's the cup we want to drink. We want that power. We want that glory. And what Jesus is showing them here in this very, very moving and disturbing passage is that his vision of greatness and glory could not be further from their minds, that when he says drink the cup, he has something entirely different in mind than they are thinking, than King Arthur and his knights are thinking, than Indiana Jones and the Nazis are thinking. He has a completely inverted understanding of greatness that he will exhibit in the final week of his life. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? So I wanna look at, answer that question really in two, two points, two frames, two themes. The first is why you can't drink the cup, and only Jesus can. Why you can't drink the cup. And the second is why you can drink the cup through the power of Jesus. All right? Are you all with me? So first, why you can't drink the cup. What is Jesus talking about when he uses this language of cup? Well, cup is actually a pretty pervasive metaphor in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament prophets. Let me just read you a few. Uh, Isaiah 51 says, God says, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you have drained its dregs, the cup that makes people stagger. Jeremiah 25, this is what the Lord says, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will wield against them. So you can see, drinking the cup in the Bible is not a good idea. <laughs> drinking the cup is not a happy thought. The cup throughout the Bible represents the wrath of God. It represents the pure and holy anger of God against sin. And I know this is like a really hard thing to talk about in sort of modern 21st century America that God is angry. But frankly, that's what the Bible says about him, is that, is that he's angry, not, not in a sort of a selfish and impetuous anger, the way that I get angry with my kids when they disturb you know, me, but a, a, a holy and pure anger whose wrath moves out against all the evil that destroys his good creation. I mean, you, you can even understand this a little bit on a human level. I, I read this week a story about a little girl named Kim in the Philippines who was raised in poverty there's no public schooling in the Philippines, so she was not able to go to school. When she was 12 years old, a neighbor said, hey, if you move with me to Manila, the capital, I can put you in a school. And her parents said, okay, we'll do that. So they, they moved to Manila. Instead of putting her in a school, 
He put her in a brothel and he enslaved her. 12 year old little girl, the age of my daughters. And do and, and, and you feel the, the, the anger? That, that you, even, even a, a selfish sinner like me, can feel the anger over that? And then imagine God's pure and holy anger. And that's just one little girl. Do you know there's 10 million children enslaved? in the world today, and then you think about all that slavery, and you think about the oppression, and you think about the murder, and you think about the jealousy, and you think about the rage, and you think, and you think about all of the things that destroys innocent life, and you think about not just all of the sin of humanity in this present age, but all of the sin of humanity and all the centuries in which humans have destroyed one another and destroyed God's creation on this vast spectrum of human sin, and you think about that ocean, that ocean of human sin and all of the righteous anger that God has against it. And imagine that anger transmuting into this dark and sour wine, filling a gigantic cup to the brim. That is the cup that God says the nations will drink. That is the cup that all sinners, including you and me, must drink, that we deserve to drink. So when scripture says, can you drink the cup? No, the answer is no, you can't. You can't drink that cup. I can't drink that cup. No human can drink the cup and endure the wrath of God against human sin. And so what makes this so amazing is that Jesus right here in this passage says, I will drink it. It's my cup. That cup, the scripture speaks of, I will drain it to its dregs. I will drink it down. Why would he do this? He says it right here in verse 28. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says here very plainly that my mission, the reason I came is to give my life as a ransom. Ransom is the Greek word lutron, which means a price paid for a slave or a prisoner to set them free. Jesus could not be more clear that he has come to pay the ransom that we could not pray, to drink the cup that we could not drink. He says, I've come to die a violent death, to have the sword come against me as your substitute, to have my blood spilled out and my body torn to absorb the cup of the wrath of God for you. I've come to drink the cup. I mean, this is hard stuff to think. This is not popular to talk about among us Western modern progressive people. I mean, the, 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 I was actually talking to a young woman in her 20s this week, and she was like, look, I like Jesus, but I don't get all this violence and blood. I mean, we sang that offering about the bloody fountain drained from Emmanuel's veins. I mean, what in the world? Like, why all this violence? And this, woman, this young woman that I was talking to said, I mean, why can't God just forgive? Why all the blood? Why all the sacrifice? Why the violence? You know, I can't answer that question in full now. I mean, big fat books have written about, been written about that. But let me just offer just a, a, a tiny dip of the toe into the subject. And that is this. I think this is a great eternal truth that we all must learn. That all life-changing love is substitutionary. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. We saw some young parents, uh, Mike and Christy, come up this morning. We actually have five kids being baptized this morning. All these parents are coming up saying they'll raise their children. Do you know, one of the great ironies of parenting is this, is that you have a 
incredibly dependent child. I mean, look at Samuel. Look how dependent he is. And yet, for him, here's the great irony of parenting, that for your dependent child to grow up and become an independent adult, which is the goal of parenting, you as a parent must essentially abandon your own independence for like 20 years, right? I mean, you, you have to say, okay, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw aside my agenda and my desires. I'm gonna throw aside my own personal comfort and welcome pain and insufferable long nights, changing poo and all these things, you know? I'm gonna, um, sorry I said poo in church. That's probably not a good idea. Um, I'm gonna like read books over and over again that are super boring and weird. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, drive my kids around over and over again to all of these places. I mean, you're basically saying as a parent, I will, to make you whole, I will die to my desires, to my agenda. Some parents try to keep both. They try to keep their own freedom and independence and raise their kids, and they ruin their children. Because when it comes to parenting, it's either my life or yours. It's either my sacrifice or you sacrifice. You suffer a little while the death of your independence in order to make them mature and whole. What is that? That's substitutionary love. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Or think of an example from um, a piece of great literature. Um, I do love Charles Dickens' great novel, The Tale of Two Cities. And in this novel, there's two men, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. They're doppelgangers. They look just alike. Um, Yet they both love the same woman, Lucy. Charles is very charismatic. Sidney's kind of a dud. So she marries Charles. They have a wonderful family. They have kids. But it's the French Revolution, and Charles is arrested because of his alignment with Britain, and he's taken to French prison, and there he awaits his execution. And Sidney sees all this. He sees Charles. He sees this one who's married to the woman that he loves. He sees that he's about to be killed, and so he sneaks into the prison the night before Charles' execution, and Sidney says, Charles, listen, you have a wife, you have a children, you have a life. Let's change clothes. I'll die in your place. They'll never know. Charles refused. So what does Sidney do? He drugs him. And when Charles is knocked out, Charles puts on, I mean, Sidney puts on Charles's clothes. He puts his own street clothes onto Charles. He has Charles dragged out of prison and he takes Charles's condemnation and he gives Charles his freedom. Why is that at the heart of so many stories? Whether it's Dickens or Harry Potter. I mean, why is substitutionary love at the heart of so many stories because it's the nature of reality because I want you to see how much God loves you that when it comes to sin and the sin in the world God can't just wave his hand and forgive everybody if you've ever had to forgive someone you know that it's very costly there's a there's a great debt when you have to forgive someone either you're going to make them pay or you forgive them and you absorb the cost of their offense against you, but it doesn't just go away. Somebody pays for the offense. And it's the same with God. There's this huge debt, this cup of wrath, this vat of punishment stored up against the sin of humanity, including yours and mine. And Jesus says, I will do it. I'll drink the cup. I'll take the condemnation. You take my freedom. God substitutes himself for us. Why? Because the triune God is a God of love. And at the heart of all real love is substitutionary sacrifice. And this is the only kind of love that can change a person. Dale Bruner said, he who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong may be condemned for nothing. 
And this is why we see the first and best answer to Jesus's question, can you drink the cup, is no, I can't. But praise be to God, Jesus has drunk it for me. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to receive the gift of Jesus's atoning grace for you, that he has drunk the cup for you. To say that I am this valued, this love, this treasured because you have become my ransom and have substituted myself for me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? That's what we meditate on, friends, this holy week. You see that? So that's the first answer to that question, why you can't drink the cup. But the second is interesting, why you can drink the cup. Look at, look at this passage again. Look at verse 8. What's interesting about this passage is, is even though it's clear that Jesus is the one who is appointed to drink the ultimate cup, he says to James and John that they will indeed drink my cup. You see that in verse 8? Isn't that weird? What does Jesus mean? Well, let's back up. Verses 17 through 19, Jesus predicts his death. Now, for the third time, the third time he's told them he's going to die, and this time he does it with great and graphic detail. He says he'll be flogged tortured, executed, and yet still, still the disciples don't get it. They think he's like talking about some metaphor. Like, so, so when you say tortured and crucified, what you really mean is you'll destroy the Romans, right? That's what you mean. No. See, they're like incomprehending, and their incomprehension is revealed very powerfully in this inane request. James and John, pathetically with the help of their mommy, go to Jesus, and they have this request that they would sit at his right and left in his kingdom. See, they're still envisioning. Jesus is going about, about to go into, he's about to go up in that place, take that throne, beat those Romans, and I want to preemptively get a place with him in his cabinet. I'm going to be VP, Speaker of the House. We're going to be right there with him, right at the place of power. And they were hungering for it, lusting for it. And you could see even the disciples, other disciples get charged up, verse 24. Why? Not because they're concerned about the spiritual maturity of their two bros, but because they want it too. They want the power and glory as much as those dudes. Do you see that? I mean, just, just think how Jesus must have felt at this moment. He is about to go to his execution, torture, and death, and his crew is fighting about who's the best. But look how he handles it. First, he's so gentle. He says, you have no idea what you're asking. My, the place on my right and my left, you really want those places? In a few days, they'll see who's got those places. They'll be on the hill. They'll see the criminal and the slave. They'll see him crucified, nailed to the beam next to Jesus. Jesus says, you don't know. You don't know what you're asking. And then he gently corrects them. He says, verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Can we just say that phrase together as a family? Not so with you. Let's say it again. Not so with you. You, you my people, whoever wants to be great, you must become the slave. Who wants glory? You want glory. Be the servant. Because the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus wants them to understand this. He wants us just to understand this. Because he's a different kind of king, he needs a different kind of people. Because he's an upside-down king, he needs an upside-down people. Because he is a servant king, he needs a servant people. Because he's a dying king, he needs a dying people. But they don't want this. We don't want this. They're just like us. They want glory. 
Greatness, power, victory, triumph. They want the best seats at the table. They lived in the Greco-Roman world where there is a victorious hero monumented on every corner where victory and triumph is everything. The famous writer of the first century, Plutarch, wrote a best-selling book called How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. And that would be a top seller on Amazon today. I'll tell you that. This is the air they breathe, the water they swim, and greatness comes through power. Greatness is through winning. Greatness is through victory. The spirit of the age, your life from mine, even if you got to step on others to get it. And Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you, because if you are going to follow me, your model of greatness is not the general, but the slave. Not the one who sits at the head of the table, but the busboy who serves it. For us, if you're going to drink the cup my cup of sacrifice in servanthood and substitutionary love, your mantra must not be your life for mine, but my life for you. That's the drumbeat of the community of Jesus. And the disciples cannot comprehend that right now, but later they will. Later they will learn to drink from the cup of Jesus. In fact, James goes on to become a leader of the church, and he, like Jesus, is executed. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, he drinks the cup of Jesus. John is put on trial and banished to the island of Patmos where he must suffer and die alone. He will drink the cup of Jesus. The other disciples, they do not follow that pathword of upward mobility towards self-advancement. They follow the pathway of downward mobility, every single one of them ending in execution and death. They drink the cup of Jesus. So Jesus is saying the same word to us. Will you learn to drink from my cup? I mean, thanks be to God, we don't have to drink from the ultimate cup. Jesus has drunk the dregs of the wrath of God for us. There is nothing left for you by receiving Jesus. You know it is absolutely true. There is no condemnation left for you. You are received fully by grace, my friend. But after you receive that grace, Jesus now invites you to drink his cup of servanthood, of sacrifice, of substitutionary love. He sees us. He sees the way that we, even as Christians, seek greatness through recognition and status and wealth and power. He sees the way that we often make choices to advance our own selves at the expense of others. He sees even the way, I mean, he sees the way the American church often pursues, you know, the same patterns of worldly success, celebrity, spirituality, and political power, and all the machinations in order to get what we want and gain control over those that the church hates. Jesus says to us, his people, not so with you. Because for me, if you're going to follow a crucified Savior, you must be a crucified people. You must be those who never live saying, your life for mine, but my life for you. So will we be the lowest of all servants? Will we find our greatness in humble love? Will we substitute our power and privilege for others? Will we willingly die that others might live? Jesus is inviting us to drink his cup. And here's the amazing thing. And I've learned this from my older saints, older saints around me, is that when you really begin to follow and know this upside down king, you actually begin to want different things. I remember talking to Jack Swanson, a friend of mine who for 15 years cared for his wife as she descended into the dark abyss of Alzheimer's. And he cared for her long after she lost any recognition of who he was or any understanding of what he did for her. And I remember talking to Jack after she died, and I said, Jack, how did you do that? And Jack said, 
I don't know. I just know that Jesus was very near. And at some point along the way, I found joy in loving her in, in the way that I loved her. See, I'm telling you, you've never heard of Jack Swanson, but he will be one of the great ones in the kingdom because that's what happens to you. When you walk long enough with the crucified king who gave himself in substitutionary love for others, you become the same kind of person of greatness who wants to give yourself again and again in substitutionary love for others, and you find joy and glory in such things. Don't you want that to happen to you? I want that to happen to me. So friends, Jesus is asking us, can you drink the cup? And I hope you've seen that, first of all, you can't, that Jesus has drunk it for you. Let's meditate on that amazing truth this week as we head into Holy Week. But second, you can drink the cup. Now, united to Jesus, you're given the opportunity to live a true life of greatness, one that is lasting, one that is bound by the way of Jesus, the way of servanthood, the way of substitutionary love. The tale of two cities ends like this. The young woman was also in prison awaiting execution, the young seamstress, and the day after Sidney Carton switched places with Charles, she began speaking to him, believing that it was the same Charles that had been with her in prison for all of these months. And suddenly it dawns on her, this, this, this is not Charles. And her eyes widen and she says to Sidney, are you dying for him? And Charles says, yes, and for his wife and children. And the young woman says, stranger, I have been feeling that I am not going to endure my own death. But if someone as brave and as loving as you holds my hand, I will be able to endure all things. And they both walk bravely to their deaths. Friends, may we contemplate the substitutionary love of Jesus for us this week. And as he draws near to us and we to him, may we become like him bravely facing all that he might be asking us to do as we give our lives, give ourselves for others, for the life of the world. That is who we are, my life for you. Let's pray. Maybe just say to Jesus now what the Spirit might be prompting you to say, whether it's to thank him or to confess something to him or to ask for his help in a really hard situation in which you are struggling to love someone, perhaps, who is not reciprocating. What would you say and ask now? Holy God, we thank you for the events of Holy Week that we celebrate each year and we pray that as we see the substitutionary sacrificial love of Jesus for us who drank the cup of the wrath of God for us, may we also be those who drink the same cup, the cup of sacrifice, the cup of servanthood, the cup of substitutionary love because therein lies true greatness, the greatness that will last forever. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.